This morning, we're going to be looking at the text of Isaiah. You can go ahead and flip there. This wonderful and marvelous prophet who came to the land of Judah and was to prophesy specifically to the people of Israel. But before we get to chapter 11, there is a lot that has happened. And so I'll just give you a quick rundown and set the scene, as it were, of what's really going on here in this prophet of Isaiah. The prophecies uh, took place between 739 B.C. and 680 B.C., By this point, the nation of Israel, this nation that God had established and set up, was already divided because of sin. And again, I said he's prophesying specifically, that is, um, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah and to Israel. If we open up here just to look at verses 4 through 6 in chapter 1, you don't need to go there. I'll run through this this summary for you. But in verses 4 through 6, we really see what has happened to this nation of Israel. Isaiah prophesies against them here. It says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who dwell corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have, or they are utterly estranged. He says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole, faint, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. This once great nation of Israel, again, brought out of the land of Egypt, saved by God himself, has now fallen into demise. Jerusalem is desolate, chapter 1, verse 7. As a punishment, God, even against his own people, is going to fight against them, chapter 1, verse 24. As a punishment for their neglect of him, he will come against his own people. By the time you get to chapter 3, we read in the first seven verses about this judgment that he will cause a collapse of their government and their economy as they know it. Verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one of his fellow and every one of his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. And so we see again that the Lord is expressing where this great nation at one time of Israel now lies in demise. Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3 go on to describe just how far they've fallen. It talks about there that they will be overcome with death and destruction. Verse 24 of chapter 3, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. Chapter 5 verse 14 talks about them that they 
in their sin will be silenced. The Lord will shut them down. They will not even have a word to speak to him. And we get to verse 25 of chapter 5, and we see really the, the culmination of this punishment that the Lord is warning this Israel about. Verse 25 here starts with expressing that the Lord will call for a specific nation to come and snatch Israel away. Verse 25 says this, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loosed, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. In other words, the prophet here is describing this scary and tumultuous scene, this frightening scene that this this mighty army is going to come. The Lord is going to raise a signal. In this land of Assyria, as we will learn, is going to heed that call and they are going to come with battle cry, ready to take aim with their bows and their swords against this nation of Israel. And we know what happens because eventually this does come to fruition. Again, in their time when they're reading this and being warned about this, this is still future to them. To us, this has already happened. And so we know that Assyria does indeed come. They do indeed besiege and take the nation of Israel captive. And they do so with blood and with terror It was common for the Assyrians to take the best of the people and to bring them into their own country and to teach them their ways. So essentially they would overtake the the smartest of the people of Israel and they would turn them into Assyrians as it were. And so we see this once wonderful city, this once choice people of God now in its full demise being taken captive by an unbelieving Gentile nation. But this is common for prophecies. This is not just uh, common, or this is not just specific for Isaiah. This is common of all prophets. And the Lord used them for specific purposes. It's not uncommon to see a typical, uh, a typical pattern like this. There's first a warning of a near or distant judgment. The Lord sees something and warns of either here, this captivity that will come. He warns later of a Babylonian captivity. And so there's this first warning of near or distant judgment. But the Lord doesn't just stop there. He, in this, in the midst of this warning, calls the nation to repent, to turn from their sin. You see, the Lord does not delight in wickedness and he does not delight in the judgment of the wicked. He wishes for all men to come to the knowledge of who he is. And yet, because he knows we won't, he still has to offer that 
repentance. And as we'll see even here in the the crux of what we will study this morning is that there is always an encouragement of restoration. This call or this warning is meant for a specific purpose. It was to drive the people to repentance and to turn from their idols and to turn to the Lord. This call to repentance was a call to pursue righteousness because the day of the Lord is indeed imminent. And the encouragement with the restoration provided a reminder of God's faithfulness. Despite the unfaithfulness of Israel and despite our unfaithfulness on a daily basis, we can still long for and look to a day where the Lord will indeed restore us by his mercy and by his kindness. Even in the title Isaiah, the word Isaiah means Yahweh, that is God, will save. Even in the title, we see this idea of redemption and repentance offered by the glorious God. And so by the time we get to chapter 10, we really are now seeing beyond this captivity. We're getting to see the glorious after effect, as it were, of what it will look like after this Assyrian captivity. The nations will uh, indeed snatch Israel away, but they too will face judgment. We can see this in chapter 10, verses 20 through 27. It says, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty Lord, mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, while my fury comes to an end, excuse me, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And, your, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Mishmash, uh, he stores up his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeath of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Gilam. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. But listen to this. Behold, the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of hosts, will lop the bows, that is the bows of Assyria, with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so we see this, this promise of restoration, this promise of deliverance from this nation of Assyria. This promise to destroy the very people that took them captive. And that leads us to our text this morning of Isaiah 11. 
follow along with me as I read. Isaiah 11 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What a wonderful picture that we can see here, right? Now, I want to give you a quick note on this. This is not a sermon about the historical timeline or the eschatological timeline of when this will occur. This is not the main point here. There is enough, I believe, to show that this is defining the millennial kingdom. You can simply look at a couple of things here. We can look that, the, that there is still wickedness that needs to be judged. Even if you look in Isaiah 65, a parallel passage here, we see that there is still birth and there is still death indeed. These are not characteristics of the final and perfect kingdom that we do still long for. But again, that is not the main point here. What we want to understand here is, as Isaiah is warning these people, these, this nation of Israel about God's imminent return and pointing them to this glorious and wonderful day, he wants them and he wants you to look to this better future where the Messiah will reign in perfect righteousness. And in the meantime, pursue him as you grow. We need to be prepared to be fit for the kingdom of God. We know that it is imminent. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night at any moment. And none of us, none of you should be caught steeped in your sin. And so that is the warning this morning. And so as we study through this text, we're going to see that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, unveils four glorious realities of the Messiah's future kingdom. First, we're going to see here in verses 1 through 2, the Messiah will reign with spiritual qualities. The text begins by talking here about that there will be a, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. We're first introduced to this branch, as it were, in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, a passage that you're, I'm sure, familiar with, the one that we read most often during Christmas, right? You probably have it on a Christmas card somewhere or a placard somewhere. It says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We see this branch, I said, as I already said, introduced here. And this ties right perfectly into the way that chapter 10 led us up to this. Ties in with the Assyrian lands falling. It's right after we see here these verses where it says that the Lord of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And this is perfect symbolism to follow these verses where we see this Assyrian army, this worldly kingdom being chopped down, never to grow again, to fall desolate. We know that even in the midst of Israel's sin and their failure as their desolation as a nation, the Lord will never fully cut them off. And we see that the spread comes from this root of Jesse. Now, if you're not familiar with who Jesse is, simply Jesse is the father of David, who was the king of Israel, who sat on the throne and created this royal lineage, which where we see will Christ will come through the Davidic Uh, covenant. And this is completely a contrast with the Assyrian monarchy that we're going to look at. In chapter 10, verses 8 through 19, we really see what this Assyrian monarchy looked like. The question that always comes from these men who focus on their own abilities to raise up a nation. We see that this root of Jesse will be placed by the Lord, will be placed uh, divinely. But we can see in contrast how the men of this uh, Syrian nation really thought. In verses 8 through 19, we get a taste of this. It says here that they were thinking this, for he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? Basically, the leader here of Assyria is saying, are not all these other people just like one another? We've defeated them all. He goes on and says, As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish their speech, the speech of the arrogant heart of the kings of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. The Assyrian king will go on in his prideful boast, saying, My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. But listen to what God says in, in rebuke of this haughtiness, this pridefulness, this man or these men in Assyria who say that they have uh, accomplished these great feats, these kingdoms by their own hands. The Lord responds with this, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? 
as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and undergo his glory, or, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Listen to this. The glory of his forest, that is the Assyrian forest, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of the Assyrian forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In their arrogant pride, in their haughtiness, this nation of Assyria, who does indeed take over the nation of Israel, will fall under the acts of divine judgment, and their forest-like army will be defeated in one fell swoop. They will no longer last. We no longer see any of the Assyrian descendants. They are wiped out from the earth based on this. And yet again, we see this root of Jesse coming into fruition, this branch, as it were, it says here, which will bear fruit. We understand that this fruit that will be born from this branch is grace and new leadership. But what really separates this this new leader, this branch, this Messiah that will come and will reign is something significant that we need to see here in in the second verse. It says here, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This new king, this new ruler, this branch that will flow out of the root of Jesse, will be spirit-empowered. Nothing like the world powers, as we already read, who uh, rely on their own understanding, rely on their own efforts. He will have wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, that is, the quality to make sound judgment. He will have the ability to look into somebody and to make a judgment based on his understanding. John 1, 1, uh, 1, 1 through 14 really gives us the idea here of how he can truly judge people and make sound judgment with wisdom. We see here that he is with God and he is God. So uh, the Messiah here will have a divine ability to judge. He will not only have wisdom, but he will also have understanding. In other words, he will have the ability to apply this wisdom. He will be able to comprehend and act upon the wisdom that he will have, this divine ability that is enabling from the Spirit of God. Not only will he have wisdom and understanding, but he will also have counsel and might. The counsel here, the idea is the demonstration of judgment and rule. The ability to plan and execute these judgments. But he will do so in might. That is, he will do so in firmness and constancy and judgment and rule. So we can say this, this spirit-empowered branch, this spirit-empowered root of Jesse who will come and will now be a new leader, a new ruler, and will have this new reign, will have wisdom, he will have the ability to make sound judgment and will apply that wisdom. 
He will have comprehension and will act upon this wisdom. He will demonstrate judgment and rule. His ability to plan and execute, and he will do so with might and ability. But really, we see the the thing that kind of pulls this all together, this quality that is really going to pull all this ability together, which is the third portion of this spirit that he has, which is the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. We might say that this is the glue that holds it all together because we need to understand first and foremost that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge, the Hebrew term here is really just for discernment. But not just discernment, but to do so in the highest sense with a divine calling or a divine enablement. There are many men who we can look to even today who have the ability to discern, but lack the spirit. Lack the ability to do so with divine abilities or divine qualities. His knowledge will give him the ability to express his personal relationship with Father, with the Father, that is God the Father. We can look to Proverbs 8. I'll just read it for you. This beautiful chapter in Proverbs that speaks about wisdom and defines wisdom for us really gives us an idea here of what we're looking at and what will be demonstrated by this new branch. Proverbs 8, 13 through 16 says this, The fear of the Lord is hatred and evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles and all who govern justly. You see, the fear of the Lord provides a hatred of evil, provides a a hatred for the pride and the arrogance and the way of evil, provides a hatred for evil speech, perverted speech. It's the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom, that leads to knowledge, that leads to understanding. And even here it says, leads to the ability to counsel, to have insight and to have strength. It really is the thing that allows kings to reign and rulers to decree, but to do so justly. It's this divine ability that allows princes to rule and nobles to govern rightly. And this will be that branch. This branch will come and in opposition and in complete difference to the Assyrian armies who, again, leaned on their own counsel, leaned on man-made ideas and ideologies, this new king, this new branch will come and will lead according to the spirit that enables him. In the fear of the Lord, he will have a holy reverence of the Father, not wanting to depart from what is just One commentator put it this way, true knowledge is humble because it is rooted in the fear of the Lord. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, when I figure something out, when I have one of those aha moments, a little bit of pride pops up in me. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that, right? 
None of us has true knowledge. None of us has a divine ability in the sense of having perfect ability to discern, perfect ability to have wisdom. Not so for this king. And we need to understand this. It's not as if he's going to have these different abilities at different times. Sometimes he'll rule with counsel. Sometimes he'll rule with might. But he will reign with all of these qualities all the time, just as God the Father does. In other words, these will be his very essence. This will define his kingdom. Just like worldly leaders lean on the counsel of men, we can look to our own government. We can look to our president who has to put a cabinet around him, right, to get men to help him to make decisions, whether that's on war or whatever the situation, budgetary advisories. But this Lord will have the ability to make judgments in and of himself because he will be divinely enabled. If you look to 2 Kings, and I invite you to flip over there, 2 Kings chapter 18, you can really look through Kings to see a fleshing out of this Assyrian captivity and what it really looked like. We don't have time to go through all of it. I'd love to just read through it. I think it would give us a greater context. But what we really want to see is exactly the way that these kings thought. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28, we see these men who are coming the, uh, to attack Judah. Sennacherib, who is the leader of Assyria at this time, is coming to King Hezekiah, who is the leader over Israel at this time. And listen to what he says in verse 28. This man who is coming to essentially provoke this nation of Israel. It says, Then the Rabshakeh, that's the cupbearer of the Assyrian army, stood and called out in a loud voice in the languages of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Sounds familiar, right? Like Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't really say that. Pure evil, right? He goes on, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will uh, eat of his own uh, vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land of your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Listen to this. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of these other places? Where are the, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Pure provoking, pure idolatrous belief in their own ability, their own ways, But this really does highlight even today's governments, right? We believe that we can do all of these things on our own. We believe that if we go into other countries and we wage war, that we will win based on our own technologies or our own merits, our own abilities. 
This is nothing new under the sun. Yet all this does is this just shows what is in the heart of man and that they believe and we believe that we can do anything we set our hearts and mind to. Worldly leaders lean on the counsel of men, give praise to themselves for their own accomplishments, their own abilities. We can even see here that it's steeped in unrighteousness. These worldly kingdoms are known by their evil deeds, their evil ways. They're established, feeble, and frail. False agreements in different nations, false ideas and beliefs put these nations where they are, and yet they, are, they will fall just as quickly as they are raised. In contrast, the Messiah's new kingdom, this new heaven and new earth, will be supplied with divine abilities and qualities. The Messiah will reign with the ability to discern perfectly and justly. He will bring glory to the Father in the fear of the Lord. The Messiah's reign will be defined by righteousness, defined by faithfulness, and defined by truthfulness. And it will be everlasting and forever. It always makes me laugh when we talk about our country being founded on Christian beliefs and that we will be some divine country that will bring a reformation to the rest of the world. And yet we never see anything about our country in the end times or in the end of the Bible. We need to understand that the Lord is gracious to allow us to be here at all. But our kingdom is frail and weak and feeble, just like the Assyrian nations. And we can fall just as quickly as they did. But not the Messiah's kingdom. It will be everlasting, and it will be defined by the qualities that he will exhibit, which are the, the Spirit, led by the Spirit. But not only will the Messiah reign with spiritual qualities, but the Messiah will also, next in verses 3 through 5, judge in perfect righteousness. With this perfect ability, this divine enablement, we see now that the Messiah will indeed judge. The one that is set on the holy mountain will enact judgment under the divine guidance of the Spirit. But it says here that he will not judge by the senses, Rather, we know that he will divinely uh, uh, judge with the uh, Spirit, which will guide him. In the fear of the Lord, with reverence to the Father, he will judge. This Hebrew term here for judge literally means he will act as a lawgiver. He will govern. He will give laws to this new, this new kingdom, deciding controversies and exacting law. It says here... It, he will not do so visually. He will not make judgments by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is typically how we make judgments, is it not? That we look upon a person and we make assumptions based on the outwardly appearances of either race, social status, Maybe we even decide on the severity of the crime and based on the severity of crime, we'll judge you according to that. We judge based on preferences, likes and dislikes. Or maybe we're influenced 
by what we hear, by bribery, by influence, by encouragement from outward influences. Again, what we're seeing here is that this judge will not do so according to outward influences. And this is the common format of a case, is it not? If you ever watch a case, you recognize that in a trial, you bring evidence, you bring witnesses, you bring your side of the story. The lawyer typically provides a compelling argument. But even these things are tainted by sin. This is not so for the new Messiah who will reign. He will judge with righteousness, it says. Both the poor, it says here, and the wicked. The the poor here, the idea of the judgment is really one of salvation. With the meek and the poor, he will offer new life. But for the wicked, it says here that he will judge them with death. Just as it's common for the Lord to focus on the humble and the poor, we focus and we laud sin, right? Even in our society today, we see this illustration of false acceptance. We're touting homosexuality. We're touting all of these sinful things to make it look like that we're accepting, to make it look like we're judging rightly. But these are false illustrations of acceptance and judgment. The Lord will judge so much so that he will be girded with righteousness. That is, he will have the girdle, the, the rope tied around his neck to hold up the rest of his clothing and it will be defined by righteousness. That will be the very thing that holds this new Messiah together. The idea of girding something was to prepare for battle, to get one ready to strike down an enemy. And so with that in mind, the Lord will come ready for battle to strike down the wicked. But he will do so not with the sword like man does, but he will do so with righteousness and faithfulness. With righteousness, with right thinking, with divine ability to judge, he will do so. And with faithfulness, completely obedient to the Father, the submissive will to him, He will judge. But he will do so because of this. Not because of the outward. Not because of what you look like or what I look like. But he will do so because of what is inside of man. John 2, 23 through 25 says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that is Jesus Christ, many believed on his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We can say this, the judgment is equitable because the branch will judge the heart. We might call it man's control center, the seat where man makes his decisions, right? And by this divine enablement, only this righteous branch can know what is in the heart of man. No human leader will ever be able to know that. And because of this, the result will be a better kingdom where judgment will not be based on race, ethnicity, or social status. But it will be different because righteousness will define this kingdom, will define this judgment 
It will be a holy and righteous judgment because the Lord will, will reign with that divine ability. And with this, not only comes the Messiah reigning with spiritual qualities, the Messiah judging in perfect righteousness, but we also see that the Messiah will deliver peace to creation. We see here this wonderful illustration starting in verse 6, the wolf and the lamb, this predator and prey illustration, this idea of the wolf and the lamb coming together in peace. The Leopard and the goat as well coming together in peace. The lion and the calves lying together. These vulnerable and desirable um, innocent animals who are now lying with these predators. This nation will be so wrought with peace that even the child will lead these animals. This lion, this wolf. The once fierce animals here are now defined or illustrated as dwelling together. Not only that, but the cow and the bear shall feed on the grass together. The lion and the ox, uh, no longer in enmity, but now subdued, eating the grass of the field. And even their young ones lying together. A wonderful illustration of equality in the animals. And even in verse 8, a a step further, if you will, to illustrate this peace that will be now enacting this new kingdom, which is the illustration of a child and a snake. Now, there's two figures that we, or two ways that we can look at this. We need to understand this very briefly. We can either look at this figuratively, which is the way that some people see this. They will look at these illustrations and they will say that they'll allegorize it and they'll say this, it simply describes a symbol of the ferocity of man. In other words, they'll spiritualize it and say, this is the, def- the, the definition of a kingdom where human wolves and human lions, as it were, will no longer harm human lambs and human calves. What they're saying this really is defining or illustrating is a, a, descri- a description of the restoration of peace between mankind using figurative language. Some might even go on to say that there really are no animals in the new kingdom, and so this has to be figurative language. The other way that we can interpret it, and the way that I believe we should interpret it, is, is a literal explanation of what this new kingdom will look like. We can look back simply to the creation, right? When God created the heavens and the earth, he created man and animals. And even as he created the animals, he did so for uh, Adam. And he brought all of these, these animals before him for him to name them. And not once do we see any sort of enmity between man and these animals. This is all describing a, a, new, or a perfect place where we see that at this time there was no sin in this place. They were all dwelling together. But then we see the fall and it's at that point that we see the first death of the animal, right? This is a literal place. This is a literal time. And just as Isaiah 65 is describing a literal place, we need to look at this as well as a literal new heaven and a literal new kingdom. But what will define this kingdom is that it will, be in, it will be filled with the peace that will be provided by the Messiah. Not only was the 
the creation literal, but we can even look at the kingdoms before, right? There was no allegorizing this Assyrian kingdom. We know that they really did come. They really did enact judgment. They really did come. They really did slaughter. This was a true kingdom. And just the way that the literal Assyrian kingdom or the literal Babylonian kingdom came and took over this nation, we can understand that this new nation will be real as well. The Assyrian reign was built on corruption and death, murder. And listen to what one person says very briefly about this Assyrian country or this Assyrian nation. It says this, Assyria must surely have among the worst press notices of any state in history. Babylon may be a byname for corruption, decadence, and sin, but the Assyrians and their famous rulers with terrifying names like Shalmanazar or Tiglath-Pelser or Sennacherib rate in the popular imagination just below Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan for cruelty, violence, and sheer murderous savagery. He goes on, while historians tend to shy away from analogies, it is tempting to see the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the Middle East from 900 to 612 BC as a historical forebear of Nazi Germany, an aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. This literal, true kingdom of Assyria took the throne, they took over captives, and they built their kingdom on bloodshed, murder, deceit. And even the Israel reign, right? During the Assyrian rule, you can see that from 931 to 722, there were 19 kings who reigned, representing nine families. Eight either assassinated or committed suicide, and not one of them was considered good by God. Bloodshed and false beliefs and false agreements, false ideas of peace are what bring up nations today and have always done so. We can even look to our own government and see the corrupt methods and practices. Peace does not exist. Not so for this new kingdom. It says here that, that it will be peace that flows over the, like the waters of the sea. This new kingdom will be defined by the peace that is overflowing. It will be total peace in this new place. A place like we've never seen before. And we know that it's the branch that's the reason for this no more anguish, this peace that is now overflowing into this new kingdom. And that leads to our last point, which is this, that the Messiah will rule as the source of knowledge. As verse 9 ends, it says, the for, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The, the world will know and recognize that this God has now become the reign, the king of this new regime, this new kingdom. And as a signal, the Lord will stand on his holy mountain. As a banner or as a symbol, the people will recognize him. As the roots were once underground, they will now be visible. 
flowing out of this mountain. There will be nowhere that you can look where you won't see this. And just as he would be lifted up, that is the Messiah, as a symbol of forgiveness, he will serve as a sign of the fulfillment of that reign. Just as the Assyrian and other governments forced their thoughts, their ideologies, their ideas, their ways on the Israelites and other nations. They sieged, they plundered, they took. They took over by force and murder and corruption. The world will look on the Messiah and understand that through the knowledge of him, He will be the source of knowledge. They will know that they can come to him for anything. It says that we will inquire of him. We will sort out our differences through him. He will, again, judge from this lofty mountain. We will seek his guidance. We will seek his will. And with him as our symbol, as our our guiding light, as it were, his beacon giving us understanding of where he is and uh, and who he represents. No more will man need to employ our thoughts or our beliefs or our ideologies. These things that divide and create confusion and chaos will be no longer there. The Lord will serve as the fountainhead. He will reign perfectly and equitably in glory from his mountain. And so we look to this and we long for this day. Where the Lord will judge in righteousness. Where he will judge equitably. But the warning again is this. This day will indeed come. It has not yet come and it will And so the call, just as Isaiah called to the people, is to repent, to turn from your sins, to come to know the Lord so that you will be prepared for this day. There is judgment coming. But here's the encouragement. The Lord offers salvation if you will simply call upon his name and believe. He wants to encourage you that you can be restored and that you can be a part of this marvelous kingdom. This is a wonderful reminder of when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. And we need to just call on him, turn from our sins, and find comfort in the peace that he offers. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do indeed long for this day. We look forward to when you will reign with equity, with righteousness, with perfection. Lord, we're influenced on a daily basis by our outward influences and our outward government reigns. We, Lord, know that these things are imperfect. They're full of debauchery and sin. And yet, we know that one day your kingdom will be perfect. And we long for that day. Help us, Lord, to sure up our love for you, to grow in maturity, grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, Christ, to proclaim your truth to the world that they would be ready to. Lord, build your church, build your kingdom even now, and use us as recipients of that grace. 
Lord, you are kind to do this. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.